The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So I'd like to introduce the theme for today's talk by mentioning this is part of a series of talks, progressive talks, that I've been giving over the last few months. And I started with talking about views and how they shape our lives and also how they limit, they really uh, focus our perceptions so that we can't see other perceptions. And also because of that, how they shape our thoughts as well. They limit our thoughts. So we see things in terms of those perceptions and think like that, and it reinforces our view. But very importantly, these views, and the Buddha often referred to them as wrong views, actually, they block us from developing right view. And right view is the key to liberation. It's right because this is what will take us to awakening, to liberation. These wrong views are a dead alley, a dead end alley, dead end street, actually. So they don't take us there. And in particular, I focused on the view um, that there is no life after death. And I gave two talks on only the body dies, is there life after death? Because that's quite a big one in the West, particularly, because often people think this is it. There's only one life. It's all finished after this. And that has important repercussions in our lives, uh, in the way we view life and the way we um, practice the Dhamma. It makes practicing the Dhamma uh, possible. So I, th I also talked, had a talk about right view, samanditi, and this is uh, what the Buddha saw from direct experience. It's not from theory, it's not from the books, it's not from the Vedas or wherever. It is from his direct experience of reality. This is what he saw as being in accordance with reality. And very importantly, it led to awakening, it led to enlightenment. And so this right view that I mentioned is actually the gateway to stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, sotapati. So this talk will focus on the insight that makes a person a stream entry. That's impermanence or anicca. This is a very pivotal, uh, call it a trigger actually, I'll mention it in a minute, a trigger for awakening, making it possible. So I will begin with a very familiar chant for traditional Buddhists. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upajitava nirujanti te sangvupasamo sukho. And uh, that's in the Pali language, of course. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, the meaning of it is this impermanent, impermanent indeed, are all things arising from conditions or causes. They arise and decay. That is their nature. Having arisen, they cease. The going out of them is bliss. Um, this, this verse was spoken at the the Parinibbana, the passing away of the Buddha, uh, they say by Saka, the king of the Devas. But it's a verse that the Buddha actually, during his life, often uh, mentioned. And it's a very traditional uh, verse. We, we chant at all Buddhist funerals, actually. We chant this at all Buddhist funerals. And last Sunday, I was at a Buddhist funeral for Dr. Olga Mendes, I think uh, Ira Paker, 
the uh, the senior nun here at Newbury Buddhist Monastery, mentioned Dr. Olga Mendes last week, and because she was a uh, she was a Methodist, but most of her family were Buddhist, or some of the family were Buddhist. I don't know the percentage. <laughs> um, we had a joint Christian and Buddhist funeral. Quite interesting. Quite interesting. And I just mentioned, I think, um, of course, last week it was probably mentioned that Dr. Olga was actually the person who found our city centre in East Malvern and actually helped with the purchase of it. And also, very interestingly, started the Sunday Dhamma School here at the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Very. So at the end of the talk, I will dedicate merit to uh, Dr. Olga. Um, and we can include all those uh, people, that people who are watching, participating, or their relatives as well. You can think of them as if I do the chanting. But the interesting thing I was going to mention with this funeral was that the minister mentioned very accurately he talked about impermanence, and he he used quite nice phrases actually. And I think this this gets to the heart of heart of it. And he said, "If there is a start, there will be a finish. If there is a beginning, there will be an end." And in a sense, this puts impermanence. That's the way we can think of impermanence. So he's mentioning impermanence, and it's because it's part of the human experience. And of course, what is part and parcel of impermanence, time passing, is suffering. You know, the difficulties that one has with the body, not only the body and the mind. And of course, the minister on that occasion, he mentions the suffering of Christ, Jesus Christ. So that's a universal experience, this impermanence and the suffering or unsatisfactoriness that comes from it, actually. But the interesting thing is that it it made me reflect. It takes a Buddha to realize the importance of this impermanence, the importance of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, dukkha, uh, as triggers for the path to arise, as triggers for awakening, for beings to escape from being born again and again and again, to escape from being on repeat <laughs> Ad infinitum. So I just mentioned in this verse we say all things arising from conditions. And of course that points to the fact, that's the definition of, in a sense, something that comes from a cause will be impermanent. Because when that cause, cause is finished, then that, that, that phenomena will pass away. So for a body, you know, the cause for being reborn, of course, you know, is one's parents. But in Buddhist terms, we would say it's also our desire, our wish from our previous life to, when we've passed away to be reborn. That's part of the equation. So anything that comes from a, a cause or condition will have to be impermanent. And of course, this means the body, of course, we see that very easily. Funeral, you see that. And the mind as well. Also, all our sense contacts, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, they are all impermanent and pass away very quickly. And uh, so this is this is the and when the uh, the uh, verse talks about the ceasing, this is uh, it mentions here. The back to it. <laughs> it says, "Having arisen, they cease. The going out of them is bliss." When we talk about ceasing, of course, that can have the sense of uh, as as a funeral the the death of the body. 
you know, in, uh, and then after that, in Buddhist terms, the mind will move on to a new life. And often we say, rest in peace, R.I.P. And it's the sort of end of the physical pain or difficulties, the decline that people experience towards the end of their life. Often the, their health deteriorates, their mind, uh, their brain may deteriorate. And of course it has contains with it that sense of ceasing is a sense of peace. But when we talk about the going out of them or calming of them is bliss, that is, that is like... That is also that aspect, but it has a deeper aspect to it as well. It's like a candle or a fire going out. The light, the flame is going out, the heat is going out. And of course that's like death when the heat goes out of the body. But it also can have that deeper meaning of, in, in, particularly in the case of a Buddha passing away, Parinibbana, have deeper meaning of Parinibbana, the ending of all rebirth the ending of all uh, uh, suffering, the ending of all defilement. So this is, this is the deeper aspect of that verse. And as I say, it's traditional at all, Buddha, all Buddhist funerals, actually. So this talk, uh, I'll entitle it uh, Impermanence, the Wisdom that Triggers the Arising of the Path to Awakening. The Impermanence, the Wisdom that Triggers the Arising to the Path of Awakening. So it, it's fairly obvious that everybody knows this word impermanent, <laughs> impermanence and impermanent. Why aren't we stream enterers then? Why aren't we, if we, we know this uh, experience that the Buddha is pointing to, this minister pointed to last Sunday? It's, it's a common experience. So I'll start by giving some of the meanings of the word um, uh, anicca, which is we translate as impermanence. Um, so it gives a feeling for it, for what this is, what this is about, why it is such a deep wisdom, actually. Everybody thinks, you know, they know what impermanence is. We can see it uh, everywhere, but somehow we don't get the deep meaning of impermanence. So some of the meanings that I like, and it, it's, it's not just one word, so impermanence is not uh, doesn't cover it all, really. There are lots of subtle shades to impermanence. I also prefer words that are much more concrete. So instead of impermanence, nothing lasts. Now that has an impact, doesn't it? We say nothing lasts. And we see that in ruins around the world. We see that with the Buddhist ruins in India. You know, they were once thriving monasteries and the Buddha was there and many, many disciples. And then Buddhism died out in India. Um, and those monasteries became ruins. And another translation is transience or inconstancy, so the sense of constant moving and changing, which we relate to the experience of birth and rebirth. We can't stop and we can't rest. But another meaning uh, aspect of the meaning is uncertainty, and that is, is something we're experiencing at the moment with COVID-19. And this uncertainty, which is part of anicca, part of impermanence, gives rise to a feeling of insecurity. We see that in very much the case. And the famous meditation teacher, Thai meditation teacher, Ajahn Chah, he used to translate anicca as not sure or uncertain. So it has that, that feeling of un unpredictable, uh, that things are unexpected. And as I say, 
COVID-19 uh, epidemic pandemic has been a perfect example of that, hasn't it? For a lot of suffering for many, many people. And another meaning is not fixed, nothing to hold on to, nothing to rely on, which you know follows when things are uncertain, unreliable, unpredictable, what's to hold on to. And in a similar way, unstable is, is another aspect of impermanence. But of course, impermanence is not just a word. It's, a, as Ajahn Chah mentioned, you know, we can say the word anger, but the experience of anger? Wow, that's quite a different thing altogether. We can read many words in Buddhist texts, uh, any, in any books, but they're just words until we actually have that experience. And for the Buddha's teaching for, uh, for Buddhism, direct experience, abhinya, uh, direct insight or knowledge, knowing and seeing is what we aim at. It's got to be our experience. And we're very lucky because the Buddha gives us the areas we can focus in to get to develop that knowing and seeing, which will change everything for us and, and bring stream entry. So the experience of stream entry, of course, you know, and you see it often in the, the Buddhist teachings, in the discourses, the suttas. Uh, you see it for the first person who became enlightened, Venerable Anya Kandanya. And also for Venerable Sariputra and Venerable uh, Maha Mangalana. They have this experience that they, they call it the dustless, stainless eye of the Dhamma arose. And what do they see? Yang Kinshi Samudaya Samudaya Dhammang Sambantang Nirona Dhammanti, which means whatever is of the nature to arise, Samudaya, all that is of the nature to cease, Nirona. Now, you've all heard it. Are you stream interested? <laughs> of course, usually the answer is no. <laughs> So I'd like to, just before I get into the main subject for the talk the today, I mentioned that impermanence is the nature of everything in this world. It's uh, I often call it the flaw in samsara or existence, the crack in existence, or the fly in the ointment. And it's the cause for the arising of the path to awakening. And I like, there's a nice story in the Ajahn, collected teachings of the Ajahn Chah about the ruins that he visited as a layperson with his friends. And his friends would go to these beautiful uh, ruined monasteries. They were, I think, Khmer uh, monasteries in Thailand because the Khmer empire stretched over Thailand, I think almost into Myanmar as well. But they'd been ruins, and his friends would be saying to him, oh, such a shame, isn't it? It's cracked, you know, it's such a beautiful building. And he said he would feel, he would feel the sim, in a similar way, but he, he, instead of saying that, he said he would say to them in a very tough way, he said, if it wasn't cracked like that, there wouldn't be any Buddha. <laughs> I'd say, and he'd say, he continued, I'd say it really heavy for the benefit of my friends, Perhaps they weren't listening, but still I was listening. So that was Ajahn Chah. <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, you can see even at that stage in the mind turning towards impermanence, uh, which could be a condition for the arising of the understanding of impermanence. But the story, what I was going to focus on today is a sutta called the Ratapala Sutta. The Ratapala Sutta, and it's from the Majjhima Nikaya, 
number 82. And it's a wonderfully dramatic story, those who don't know it. It's a narrative, so it's like it has the, all the qualities of drama, actually. So it brings up feeling and uh, it's very evocative and it shows the, the literary aspect of the Dhamma, actually. And of course, this is the work of those compilers of the Buddha's teachings uh, and the editors. They would have put this together um, even though this is not the teaching of the Buddha, this is the teaching of an enlightened monk, Ratapala. That was his name, his family name. And it's a great favourite amongst uh, monks and nuns because it shows a person giving up the home life and becoming a, a Buddhist monastic. And it's a very strong teaching on impermanence. It really, for me, very evocative, very striking teaching on impermanence. Um, because impermanence can be a, like a theoretical understanding, philosophical, but this is going towards the emotions, actually, and bringing up a deeper level of reflection on impermanence. And very importantly, this uh, teaching, this sutta, discourse, shows a connection, really, between impermanence, suffering, and non-self. We call that anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So those, and uh, it's good to remember that the reason that the Buddha left the palace, left the the uh, home life, we call it, was it was a palace though, <laughs> and renounced the all the sensual pleasures, comforts, and the status that he had in the palace. He renounced them because he says, and this is uh, I can quote from uh, a sutta for three things that for three reasons. He said, meditators, this is Ajahn Brahm's translation, if these three things were not found in the world, the Buddha, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, would not arise in the world, and the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by them would not shine in the world. What three? Birth, old age, and death. Amazing, isn't it? It's really simple. <laughs> but this is the reason that he... He left the palace, he went forth, he renounced, we call it renunciation, the great renunciation, the palace life, in search of truth, in search of an answer to these, solution to these three things. And in a sense, Venerable Ratapala's uh, going forth, he becomes a monk after listening to the Buddha, is similar. He's renouncing, he's giving up wealth and uh, all the uh, comfort and pleasures his, his position in society, they were from a leading family. His family was a leading family in this town. So I'll give some of the story and uh, then focus on some of the teachings that uh, Venerable Ratapala understood. So in this, in this uh, sutta, this discourse, the Buddha visits the town that Venerable Ratapala's family live in and it's called Tula Kotita, Tula Kotita. And uh, Renwal Ratapala, like many of the people in that town, would have gone to hear the Buddha. And he immediately after the teaching, when people were leaving, he came to the Buddha and asked him to give him the going forth. This is uh, to ask for ordination um, as, a, as a Buddhist novice. Um, and the Buddha said to him he, he, uh, that Buddhas do not give uh, ordination without the parents' permission. For, for their sons or daughters to go forth. Of course, 
his mother and father? They said no, they refused. And very interestingly, he went on a hunger strike. And he said to them, he said to his parents, right here I shall either die or receive the going forth. Right here I shall either die or receive the going forth. You can see why it's popular with monks and nuns. <laughs> and uh, he, he was going to fast to death. Uh, and it actually mentions, Ajahn Sajato's translation mentions that he fasted until the seventh meal and then his, his parents relented, which must be really about two or three days, I suspect. But it's interesting, this idea of a hunger strike or a, or a hunger fast is, or fasting to death is, 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 still quite, is still common because I remember in Sri Lanka where I spent a lot of time asking some novices why they ordained. I had the idea that they ordained because, well, their parents probably you know, pushed them or wanted them to ordain. And uh, all of them said, no, that wasn't the reason they ordained. And two of them said they actually had to go on a fast, a hunger strike, in order to get their parents to agree to them ordaining. So it's still a common experience. Anyway, to return to the Sutta, to return to uh, Venerable Ratapala, he's not, uh, his friends came, his family asked his friends to persuade him, you know, to, uh, uh, to give up the fast and to continue his life as a layperson. And they couldn't dissuade him. They couldn't make him change his mind. So they told his parents, well, if he dies, you'll lose him anyway, so maybe it is best to give him permission. And then, you know, if he doesn't like the life, he, he will come back to you. And if he does like the life, you can always insist that he comes and visits you. And so the parents thought, well, this is common sense. And so they gave him the permission, but stipulated that he must visit them after he ordains. And uh, it's interesting here that the Buddha mentions, because of Venerable Ratapala's determination he was to fast until death the buddha declared him to be the foremost of those gone forth in faith the foremost so that's amazing isn't it but i suspect it is because he was willing to die uh, for um, to practice the dhamma and of course this determination is a very important part in our practice to have determination is a great strength um, and you can see it in, in some monks and nuns. I've seen it in Sri Lanka. Great determination. And uh, Vimratapala then ordains and he practices the Dhamma. And before long, according to the commentary, he becomes fully enlightened or fully awakened. And uh, before long is actually 12 years, they say. <laughs> so that's not a, in terms of samsara, that's not long, but in terms. For most people, 12 years is a long time. And then he requests the Buddha's permission to go and visit his family. Now that he is fully awakened, he's an arahant. And the Buddha evidently read his mind and sees that he won't disrobe and he gives permission. I think this is a bit strange because if he was a monk of more than 10 years, once you've reached 10 years as a monk, you don't need permission to go anywhere. You, you can go. If you're less than that, uh, less than, yes, actually less than that, then one may need permission. But it adds to the drama, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. So he returns to his hometown, Tulakotita, and uh, he goes on arms around, and his father sees him, but he doesn't recognize him. In fact, he has, 
he abuses him and he thinks he's one of these Buddhist monks that have stolen his son. <laughs> so he, he doesn't uh, give any food. But a servant who is throwing out some rice gruel, I think it would be, um, sees, uh, sees him and he comes up and she offers this rice gruel to him. And when she does that, she recognizes him by his uh, voice and I think by his hands, it says. And uh, so she tells um, his father, Venmal Ratapala's father, his son has returned. And so the father, very upset <laughs> that his son has just only received this old uh, rice gruel for his meal for the day, chases after him and finds him at the park of the local king, King Koravia. Uh, and he invites him to come for the, for the meal, come and have something to eat. But the uh, Venerable Ratapala says, I will come tomorrow, not today. And so the father has big plans <laughs> for when Venerable Ratapala comes to visit. And so he comes the next day, and sure enough, the father unveils this huge pile of gold and says, this is all yours and there's more to come. And uh, uh, much to his father's probably great disappointment, Venerable Ratapala says, dump it in the Ganges, the Ganges River. <laughs> and his father was probably not pleased with that. But he had another strategy, his father. So he bought out uh, Venerable Ratapala's former, well, they say wives actually, wives, so a number of wives, and they're all dressed up, so they're dressed to kill, to entice. And uh, he, they actually ask him, uh, what celestial nymphs did you ordain in order to have? You know, they're thinking that it's another a woman or another uh, more attract, sexual attraction. And he says, and he says that, no, I didn't ordain for uh, uh, celestial nymphs. And then he says, sisters. And they hear that word sisters, and according to the text, they faint. <laughs> it's a bit dramatic, isn't it? They faint. So, and, uh, and eventually, Ratapala says to his father, Householder, if there is a meal to be given, then give it. Do not harass us. Because <laughs> he's trying all these tactics. And uh, his father offers the meal. And some of the commentaries say that then afterwards his son gave a teaching and he returned to the king's pleasure garden. Pleasure Park. And the gardener there sees, sees him sitting meditation under a tree and he goes and reports it to the king, King Kuravir, who was um, going to come to the park that day and uh, this gardener was tidying it up for him. And then he sees this uh, venerable Ratapala and he recognises him. And so he tells the king and the king's very interested so he comes uh, and, uh, to visit venerable Ratapala in this Pleasure Park. And uh, the king says to him that, uh, asks why somebody with everything going for them, that's what we'd say, should, would ordain. Why would anybody ordain that's got everything going for them? He said, there are four reasons the king thought for people ordaining. Either they had lost due to old age, they got so old that they couldn't make a living or that they couldn't add to their, what the wealth that they had. Or... They had a loss due to sickness. They got some terrible sickness and therefore couldn't look after themselves. So that would be a good reason to ordain, according to the king. Or they'd lost their wealth. Their wealth had gone, had dwindled away. And so then, therefore they could live in the, uh, become Buddhist monks and they would be looked after. 
Or they had loss of relatives, you know, all their family and friends had either died or moved away. So Venerable Ratapala says, and I'll quote this one because it's quite nice too, This, uh, the, uh, what, what he replies to the king. He says, great king, this is King Kauravya, the blessed one who knows and sees, this is direct insight or direct knowledge, the perfected one, the fully awakened Buddha, has taught these four summaries of the teaching for recitation. It was after knowing and seeing and hearing these that I went forth from the lay life to homelessness. What for? And these are the ones that are really striking. I think you'll find them striking too. The world is unstable and swept away. The world is unstable and swept away. This is the first summary. The world has no shelter and no saviour. This is the second summary. The world has no owner. You must leave it all behind and pass on. This is the third summary. The world is incomplete, insatiable, the slave of craving. This is the fourth summary. So that's the, the, the teaching that he gave to the king. And in a minute, I'll go into each of those in a little bit more detail. But it's interesting that uh, as far as I know from looking at reading the suttas, I've never seen these four summaries like this. Of course, they are the teachings of the Buddha, the essence of the teachings of the Buddha. But I wondered whether they were Venerable Ratapala's summaries, actually, not not necessarily the Buddha's. And that uh, maybe he wasn't good at memorizing. <laughs> this is what he came up with. And also, it's interesting that he says that he, uh, knowing and seeing and hearing these, um, he uh, wished to ordain, became a, a Buddhist monk. And knowing and seeing usually implies, um, as I mentioned before, direct insight or direct uh, understanding or knowledge. And uh, it made me reflect that the Buddha actually says in one of the suttas in the Connected Discourses on entering, it's called entering the path, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses. And it's, he says, one who places faith in these teachings these teachings on impermanence and resolves on them is called a faith follower. They are incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry. So this is somebody who hears the teachings on impermanence very deeply. They hear it and it affects them. And from faith and some understanding, they, they really, um, it really transforms the way they see life. And so then they are on, on the path. They're not stream entries, but on the path to stream entry. And this is a really major shift, actually, uh, from uh, being a worldling, we say, somebody who is not uh, on a stage, uh, approaching a stage of enlightenment, to someone that is very close. So out of faith, if this is possible. And I will speak when I give a talk on... You know, next one or two talks, I'll give a talk on stream entry and I'll mention there are other ways that one can uh, enter the path to stream entry too. And the king goes and asks, the king asks a bit more 
a few questions about each of these summaries, as you probably would, would too. And the world is unstable and swept away. What, and of course, as you'll see in a minute, it's to do with old age. And the, question, uh, the uh, Venerable Ratapali, he asked the king, when he was young, was he strong and a, a great warrior uh, in, in battle? And uh, how is he now? He says, well, when I was young, sometimes I wondered if I had supernormal power. But now um, I am old. Sometimes I mean to put my foot here and I put my foot somewhere else. So this is a very common experience of old age. And Venerable Ratapala, then he says, And when I knew and saw and heard this, I went forth from the home life into homelessness. So this is old age, the, ex the experience of old age, which is the experience we, uh, anyone with a, a, a body, whether it be human or an animal's body, will experience the unsatisfactoriness, the, the suffering that comes with it. Like Dr. Olga did. Uh, it was not easy for her either. And it's important to notice when the, the Buddha mentioned, when uh, Venerable Ratapala says the world is unstable and swept away, what is the world? Well, according to the Buddha, the world, the all, is um, concerned with our experience of our bodies and minds. Uh, and really, uh, what we, and what we experience through the senses, that's part of the body, really. This is our world. It's the only way we know the world, actually. And it's really quite, uh, quite amazing when you think about it. And I remember being sh uh, shocked or stunned by it, that really, through our six senses, this is the only way we know the world. That's it. You know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking about it. That's it. <laughs> I thought, can it be that simple? But it is. Um, but also, of course, the Buddha didn't ignore the external world as well that we inhabit, because that's obviously impacts through our senses. And uh, so that was included in it. And of course, we see that with COVID-19, what a big impact it has. But the emphasis on in this, of course, is that things are unstable and swept away. Unstable, they're not dependable, not reliable, unpredictable, uncertain. And then at an emotional level, you can feel this, you know, with a lot of, with situations like the COVID-19 pandemic. And it reminded me, swept away, always reminds me of the ocean. That's what I think of. And the waves sweeping away the sandcastles that we make as children. I remember making sandcastles and watching them being swept away. Part of it was, was interesting to see them destroyed too. But it shows the inevitability of this process. And this is the, the same process that's operating with impermanence, time passing. And the waves of, uh, are like time sweeping away our bodies and our minds also being swept away by them too. And it also linked up for me because I saw a few years ago a, a video that was just wonderful actually, it was a very short video of somebody in India on a beach. And they had one of these, uh, we sometimes call them uh, floor wipers or squeegees, I think we may call them in Australia, where those... Uh, um, things for put, uh, for moving water in a bathroom into the drain, you know, a squeegee or a floor, floor wiper, they sometimes call it. But this person was at the beach and they were sweeping the waves back back into the sea. Not big waves, but sweeping it back into the sea. And when I saw that, I thought, 
my goodness, this is what we're all doing. We're pushing the waves of reality. You know, the, what is reality? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. We're pushing them back into the sea, as if we can, really. We can try, and it's all, all an attempt to try and control conditions to get that permanence, permanence, to get stability, to get permanent happiness. And of course, very important for all of us is to find a permanent self. That's the idea. And of course, everybody doesn't take Einstein to realize that old age is suffering. So you're seeing the direct link between impermanence and suffering, uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness, which is the first noble truth that the Buddha spoke about. And it's for, the Buddha said that whatever is impermanent is unsatisfactory or suffering, and whatever is uh, impermanent unsat and unsatisfactory is not a permanent self. So this is something that, that we can all see in our own experience. And the verse that uh, at the end of the uh, Venerable Ratapala's, the sutta about Venerable Ratapala, are verses attributed to him. This is a lovely verse. There's quite a few of them, but this is the one that applies to old age, I think. <clears throat> Long life is not acquired with wealth, nor can prosperity banish old age. Short is this life, as all the sages say. Eternity it knows not, only change. So that's a quite powerful a verse. And of course, you know, in terms of how do we practice uh, with this contemplation of old age, uh, immediately I think of, I often think of it and often use it, is the five themes for frequent contemplation, which I think many of you will know. Um, it's in the uh, uh, numerical discourses, that's the, the books of numbers, and it's the book of the fives, with five things in them, and it's Sutta number 57, which uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as themes. And the, the Buddha impresses that whoever, whether we're a lay person or someone that's uh, uh, ordained, we should contemplate these five things and old age is the first isn't it and and he, he mentions for what benefit should one often reflect i am subject to old age i'm not exempt from old age and the benefit is that when we're young this intoxication with being young we call it intoxication with youth often leads us into misconduct we say or uh, by body through our actions through our speech and through our minds, it often leads to that, because we think we we are invulnerable. You know, we we can't. We will just keep living. We have got this youth, and it helps us to ab abandon or diminish that intoxication with youth, and therefore let go of some of this misconduct. And so, but then the important thing is, and this is where all the reflections take us. It's important to reflect that, uh, that old age is not just something that affects me. It affects all beings. And when we see that deeply, aha, this is part of the process, you know, part of life, and it's the same for all beings, then the Buddha says the path can arise. And that path, the arising of that path, will be whatever is of the nature to arise, all that is of the nature to cease. And so, and then the Buddha mentions that we pursue that path that's arisen, 
that sense of impermanence, the sense that things coming from a condition give rise to impermanence, that impermanence gives rise to uh, this uh, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and it gives rise to the fact that there isn't a permanent self here. There's not permanent happiness, there's not a permanent self. In an impermanent world, how is that possible? <laughs> it's not. So there we are. So that was the, the first one uh, that I hope we've got time for all these. We'll see anyway. And so the second one is the world has no shelter and no saviour or protector. That's the, the second summary that he mentions. And uh, the king says, well, I have an army to protect me. So how should this be understood? And then the Venmal Ratapala says to him, asks him, does he have any uh, chronic illnesses? And the king mentions that he, yes, he does. You know, he has a chronic wind element, they call it at that time. I think wind, a lot of pain, actually. And he said sometimes he's uh, so sick with this that his relatives think he's about to die. And then um, Venmal Ratapala asks him, can he say to his uh, relatives, you know, the people that work in the palace, you know, all his staff, you might say, all of you present, share this painful feeling so that I may feel less pain. And uh, he says, or do you have to feel that pain yourself alone? And the king says, I cannot ask others to take my pain. I have to feel the pain alone. And then the Venratopala says, And when I knew and saw and heard this, I went forth from home life into homelessness. So he saw it at a very deep level. But it's very stark, I think, you know, when you think there's no shelter and no saviour, uh, no protector, you know, saviour or protector. And to me, that doesn't immediately suggest um, illness, actually, really because it's talking mainly about uh, pain. The Venerable Ratapala is talking about painful feeling, and this is uh, Dukkha Vedana. And that can be on a physical level, you know, when the body is suffering, great pain, or chronic pain, intense pain, or mental level. And it's, one of, it's part of the human uh, dilemma or situation, really, that uh, we... It's one of the worst things in uh, people's experience is to uh, the sense that this pain will be overwhelming. I cannot manage, I can't cope. And so one of the most common things we find is medicines are painkillers, aren't they? <laughs> and uh, mentally, you know, antidepressants and other drugs for uh, psychological problems. So, and, and of course, the, the point of that is that Part of the pain is this resist. A big part of the pain, actually, people often say this chronic pain is the resistance to it, you know, and that fear of it. And so we can see this with the uh, COVID nineteen uh, in particular. And uh, he mentions that there's no shelter. The body is subject to uh, no shelter, in the sense that um, the body has arisen from causes and conditions, cause, and it's a cause and effect. The causes have given rise to this body. And I always remember Ajahn Jagru, one of my early teachers. He was Ajahn Brahm's predecessor in Western Australia. Have body will trouble. That's what he used to say. Have body will trouble. So now, so that's it's natural that we will have problems if we have a body. So I'll just... Uh, 
move on because I think we haven't got that much time actually. And no savior or protector, that's really strong because uh, most people uh, have want to have this sense they'd like someone to save them. <laughs> and it's the essence of most religions, isn't it? That God will save us or one of the teachers will save us. And it's a bit like a father figure. But the Buddha's teaching, or teaching is always about taking responsibility for ourselves, our actions of body, speech and mind. And that the Buddha, he points out the way, but he cannot walk the way for us. We must practice it. And of course the recollection from the five themes for frequent contemplation is that I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from it. And similarly to the, the previous one about old age, it reduces the intoxication with health. When we're healthy, we tend to think we will never be sick. <laughs> and it often leads to uh, misconduct, the Buddha said, by body, speech and mind, through our action, speech and mind. And we can, when we contemplate it enough, abandon that intoxication or diminish it. And then reflecting, then by reflecting that all beings have this same experience of illness, the path can arise, as mentioned before. And we can pursue it, develop it, cultivate it, and awaken to, to full awakening. And the third reflection uh, that uh, Venerable Ratapala, third summary that he mentions is, the world has no owner. You must leave it all behind and pass on. We know that, but it's quite, quite a strong uh, way of putting it. And the king says to Venerable Ratapala, well, I have great wealth, actually. So how should this summary be understood? And Venerable Ratapala asked the king, can he, when he passes away, have the same pleasures in his future life? Or, uh, or will his wealth be taken by others and he will have to pass on according to his actions? And the king says, yes, he cannot have the uh, same pleasures in his future life. And yes, others will take his property. And then then Ratapala says, and when I knew and saw and heard this, I went forth from the home life into homelessness. So this is amazing when we think the world has no owner. This is the world of the body and the mind has no owner. You must leave it all behind and pass on. So this is very much no owner. The body and mind we don't own really. We think we do. And nor do we own our relationships, our possessions. They're all temporary. We are temporary owners, as it were. We, our, we are there to look after them, as it were, for a time. And they're there because of past causes and conditions, past karma, isn't it? And at a deeper level, there is no permanent self to own these things anyway. And we must leave them all behind. All our attachments are really challenged when we, when we face death. We can't take anything with us. And we're like refugees fleeing from a war or an oppressive uh, government or regime. We have to pass on. And this is the important pass on according to our karma, the, the, the things we've done in that life that's ending and before that life even. And uh, this is what uh, the, um, some of the nice verses that the Venerable Pala mentions in relation to this. And as he dies, no relatives or friends can offer him shelter and refuge here. While his heirs take over his wealth, this being must pass on according to his actions. And as he dies, nothing can follow him 
not child, nor wife, nor wealth, nor royal estate. And then another verse, as fruits fall from the tree, so people too, both young and old, fall when this body breaks. Seeing this too, O king, I have gone forth. Better is the recluse's life assured. So that's his reflection on that. And it's interesting he says the body breaks because this is a very important thing that we see the body is one thing, the mind is another thing. The body is of that nature that it must break up and the mind is of that nature that it must move on. And of course there's this ref- reflection on, uh, there's a number of reflections here on death. We're subject to death, we're not exempt from death. And this can lead uh, to us abandoning the, when we reflect on it deeply, the intoxication with life. We tend to feel life will go on and on and on. And when we do have that feeling, we can um, say and do things and think things that are not wholesome, not for our benefit. And when we reflect that all beings of this are of this nature, of this experience of death, then the path can arise that whatever is of the nature to arise is of the nature to cease. And we can develop that path, cultivate it, to full, all the way to full awakening. But it also encompasses in this one, as you can see, when he mentions, you know, you can't take family with you and everything, is the, the reflection from the five themes for frequent contemplations. I must be part of from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me, or it will change. Sometimes these things no longer dear or agreeable to us, even in this life. And he says, the Buddha says, when we contemplate this, then desire and lust uh, for all those things that are dear and agreeable uh, reduces, can be reduced. Uh, these, When we have this desire and lust, it gives rise actually to, of course, actions and speech and and thoughts and mental states that are unwholesome. And these can be abandoned by contemplating that all these things that will be parted from them, or they will change for us, all the dear and agreeable things. And that when we contemplate like that, we realize that all, all beings, not just ourselves, everyone is, has this experience, and then the path can arise and we can pursue that path, develop it, cultivate it, and take it to full awakening. And of course, it also the other uh, theme that comes into this, as you can tell from the uh, uh, the summary, is the reflection on karma. I am the owner of my karma, or my actions, the heir of my actions. I have actions as my origin, actions as my resort. I, I will be the heir of whatever actions, karma, good or bad, that I do. So that also gives rise to a sense of responsibility and then one either abandons or diminishes misconduct of body, speech and mind and can use it to develop the path. So that's, there's three, uh, uh, three uh, contemplations there, aren't there? There's one on death, there's one on being parted from what is dear and delightful, and also the contemplation on karma, our actions, being responsible for our actions. So I'd like to get to the finish off, or I hope finish soon, by the fourth summary, which is, uh, I'll read again, the world is incomplete, insatiable, 
the slave of craving. And uh, Venerable Ratapala asked the king if someone told him about a wealthy country that was nearby and that it, uh, it was possible for him to conquer it, would he go and conquer it? And he said, yes, yes, I would. And then Venerable Ratapala mentions country after country. And the king says, yes, yes, I'd invade them <laughs> and uh, rule over them. And uh, then the Venerable Ratapala said, and when I knew and saw and heard this, I went forth from the home life into homelessness. And the verses make it very clear. A king who has conquered the earth by force and rules over the land, the ocean, bounds, is yet unsated with the sea's near shore and hungers for the further shore as well. Most other people too, not just a king, encounter death with craving unabated, with plans still incomplete, they leave the corpse. Desires remain unsated in the world. So this is, of course, this is uh, uh, what the Buddha mentions. Craving, wanting is, of course, the uh, cause of suffering, the cause of unsatisfactoriness. It's very interesting for me. I think most people, if you say that to them, and they're not Buddhists, they'll think, oh, come on. <laughs> if you don't crave, if you don't want... How will you get happiness? Uh, it's necessary for happiness. That's what people will think, you know. And so it's they to think that it's an actual cause for their unhappiness is really extraordinary. They probably think, come on. And uh, But when you look at it, it's very easy to see that when we have a desire, a, a craving, a wanting, there's a real sense of lack. We need something. We need this to make us happy, whatever this is. And it's also the fear, maybe I won't get it, or others may get it. So this is the second noble truth of, uh, that the Buddha points to. So you're seeing here impermanence, how it, entire, how it connects with uh, suffering, the dukkha, with un unsatisfactoriness. We see that how it, how it connects. And the, the sense of incomplete is never finished, imperfect. And this is what life keeps, sh uh, keeps showing us. We think when we get to some major point in our life, you know, we finish school, we finish university if we go to university, we get a job, we get married, we, we, we get a relationship, uh, we retire. There are all these things that we think will bring happiness, but we find that it, the goalposts move. <laughs> and then we think, oh no, if I get this, then I'll be really happy. It's never complete, never perfect. And I, insatiable always reminds me of the experience of drinking salt water. If you drink salt water, you'll be just being thirsty, more thirsty. And this is like a craving. And this uh, uh, slaves of craving is very evocative, isn't it? It's called tanha dasa, a slave of craving. And I, I reflect, when I read that, I reflect, this is what we are. This is what people in the world are. We are slaves to craving. This is what uh, Chadston is about. This is what all the shopping centres in the world are about. Slaves to craving. And it's, it's such a part of our lives that it takes a Buddha to see it deeply. So I'd like to uh, finish off now, um, just at the end, with a quote from Ajahn Shah, uh, where he, he says, So I say, go to, uh, go to the Buddha. Where is the Buddha? The Buddha is the Dhamma. 
All the teachings in this world can be contained in this one teaching, Anichang. That's impermanence. Think about it. I've searched for over 40 years as a monk, and this is all I could come could find. That and patience, patient endurance. This is Kanti. This is how to approach the Buddha's teaching, Anichang. It's all uncertain. So I'd like to finish there. And of course, this understanding will lead, is a trigger, as I mentioned, for the arising of the path to awakening. So it's a great teaching, and it's a teaching that won't depress us. A person that sees a Nietzsche will feel a great deal of happiness and relief. At last they know that the world can't offer this permanence that we're seeking for, permanent happiness, permanent self. They know that. And this is a great happiness for them, a big relief. So I'd like to finish there, and maybe at this stage, uh, before the, uh, if there are comments or questions, I would just dedicate the merit uh, to Dr. Olga. And please, if you've got people at, your, at home that you're thinking of who've passed away, or even friends that need a blessing, not a dedication of merit, but a blessing, you know, because they're experiencing difficulty in, in their lives, please think of them at this time. So I'll do the, the words of uh, dedication of merit. And I'll do them in Pali and English so you can understand. Idang vonyati nang hotu sukita hontunyatayo. Idang vonyati nang hotu sukita hontunyatayo. Idang vonyati nang hotu sukita hontunyatayo. This is for for your relatives. May your relatives be happy. That's the translation. And this is for the living and those who have passed away as well. This is so for Dr. Olga and for any of those that uh, at home that you can that you remember your relatives, your friends. May you abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, and may you maintain well-being in yourself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And just before, if there are any comments or uh, questions or complaints, indeed, complaints, I just mentioned that Monday, uh, on Monday, tomorrow, that's it, tomorrow evening, there is the Monday guided meditation at 7.30. This is a part of the Buddhist Society of Victoria's regular program. And that's 7.30 Melbourne time. All right. So there are questions. So I'll yes, ask Chin Mook to have read. quite a few questions to go through. All right. And we've got... Okay. The first one is... It's a question about death. So when the body is dying, mm -hmm. will the rebirth take place at the same time? Or does this process need to take some time? So how exactly is the process of dying according to Buddhism? Right, right. Well, does it take place immediately at, that, at the point of death? Um, in uh, Theravada Buddhism, they say yes, you know, when uh, the body breaks up and the mind separates, then there is uh, immediate rebirth. But it does appear 
that uh, some from people uh, in other Buddhist texts and other traditions, they believe there was an in-between life, <laughs> antrabhava they call it, and uh, that people went into this sort of uh, ghost sort of realm for a time and then took rebirth. But you can see those, um, uh, those uh, you could say those intermediate states, they often call them in Tibetan Buddhism, as being a form of rebirth. So they will move on. The mind will move on to another situation. And, um, you know, you do even hear in some of the uh, uh, rebirth literature the, from uh, various researchers that people have uh, recorded that they actually went to their own funeral, you know, in a, a sort of a ghost body. But uh, then eventually they take rebirth. So, so that's how we would see it. But it's very important that we see that the body is one thing and the mind is another. So that only the body dies, the mind will move on to another life. Unless it's really penetrated uh, with wisdom, anicca, uh, this uh, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and anatta, non-self, it will take rebirth uh, somewhere or other. So uh, this is... Uh, the mind taking rebirth, it will seek out another body to have to experience life through, and that will be according to the the uh, actions of the, the 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 life that's just finished, as well as early earlier lives. So that will determine where the mind takes rebirth, because all our actions of body and speech come from the mind, and so that the mind, as it were, is stationed at a particular level of, uh, of uh, misconduct and also good conduct, of wholesome and unwholesome. And that will determine where, uh, where our mind fits in the possibilities for rebirth. So I hope that answers your question a bit. <laughs> Next question. Yes. Um, again, a uh, question about death, slightly yeah. different angle. Yes. If someone close to us die, <clears throat> is it possible to meet him or her later when we pass away or maybe when we regularly meditate? Oh, right. Right. Is it possible to meet them when we pass away or when we regularly meditate? Oh, that's interesting. When we pass away, it is possible that we, we can uh, um, uh, meet uh, meet somebody who's passed away. You know, in the Christian tradition, often they think, you know, go to heaven and you, you all meet up there. In the Buddhist tradition, it's a little bit different because we'd say if you have similar karma, yes, you, you will be in a similar rebirth. But often you find, you know, some, you know, for instance, with partners, one may be, have these qualities and, and the other one have different qualities. So the Buddha said anybody that has similar faith, uh, it doesn't have to be the same faith, they don't have to all be Buddhists, I guess, but also have similar virtue. This is similar morality. So they're very good people through body, speech and mind. Um, then there is the possibility of them meeting up. Because in the Buddhist text, there is a famous couple, they're called the, the sort of ideal Buddhist couple, actually, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata. And uh, they asked, or Nakula Pitta asked, how can we be reborn together? And the Buddha mentions actually, mentions those two, and there's a couple of others too. I think wisdom is one of them. Similar view, you know, way of looking at life. So in other words, 
for us to come together again, we have to match in terms of, uh, of these qualities of faith, virtue, maybe wisdom. Uh, and, and there's another one, I think, as well. So if there's a match, it will happen, you know, that the, you'll meet this person again. If there isn't, probably be reborn in different places, slightly different places. So that would be the case. But not all partners want to be reborn together. That's a quite an unusual, unusual idea, actually. Can we meet them in meditation? Some people have got, uh, you know, these psychic abilities. You can base them on the, uh, deep meditation, samadhi. This is where the mind is very powerful and, and can give rise to the ability to see other worlds of existence, other realms of existence. So, for instance, Venerable Mahamogalana, he could, he could, through his mind, go to various realms of existence, heavenly existences. I think he could go to any of the lower realms too. You know, the, well, the animal realm we can see, but also the hell realms and so on. So it is possible, but it's quite a bit of meditation, a meditative power to do that, actually, to see them. And certainly for that to happen, <laughs> there would need to be no, no defilements running actively. So if we have a great attachment to somebody, it's very unlikely we'll be able to see them in meditation. Though we may give rise to an image in our mind, which we can mistakenly think is actually them in this their new life. So... So there we are. I hope that answers it. Next question. Mm. With karma, if someone does something unwholesome, mm. does their bad karma have to manifest as an event directly related to that action? Mm. Or can the bad karma arise in a seemingly unrelated event later? Right. They usually say the, the way it's experienced is of a similar nature to the original uh, uh, unwholesome action that caused that, that result. So it would be... So, for instance, you know, when um, people in a past life have killed a lot of beings, then uh, in this life they would tend to have a short life. And so that, that would, we'd, we'd say that was a karmic consequence of doing killing in past life. And so, you know, also people that harm others in previous lives, even in this life, will experience like a lot of sickness and illness, those sorts of things. So they are of a similar nature, they're related, you know. And very interestingly for people, those who get very angry <laughs> in a future life, they'll be very ugly. And, and if anybody doubts that, you just look at yourself in the mirror when you get angry. It's really quite a shock, actually. And I heard in Sri Lanka of uh, one grandmother, I think, who would say to her children when they get angry, go and look in the mirror, go and look in the And when you look in the mirror, it looks like a devil or a yakka, we say. You know? And so it's very easy to see how a person who develops a lot of anger um, in a future life will be, will be born uh, ugly or not very attractive. So that's uh, so you can see the results. So it's of a similar nature. That's usually how we see it. But of course, with Buddhism, it's not destiny. So what we do here and now in terms of good karma that we create can dilute that. And so, for instance, somebody who's killed a lot of beings in the past life or even in this life, they can start to give life to beings, whether that is helping them with uh, medicines, uh, releasing animals that would be killed, that sort of thing, many, many different things. So it's not a, 
not destiny. This is a very important point, that it's not destiny. We can, as it were, affect the results, the fruit, the parlour of our previous uh, actions, negative actions. So I hope that helps. Can we, or maybe do we, experience karma in this life? Yes, yes, of course we do. You can see it. You can see it. You know, if we say something, I often use this as an example, say something nasty to somebody, immediately they'll come back. You know, you can see cause and effect operating. Karma is an aspect of cause and effect. So, yeah, there is such a thing as called instant karma. And there's some really stunning examples you can see, you know, of people, people experiencing instant karma straight away. Some things you don't see immediately. You think you've got away with it, but it's not the case. <laughs> Is there a distinction between craving and striving? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the next oh, part. Right. Yeah. The next, uh, for example, let's try to clarify. Mm. Striving to improve knowledge to academics, to dharma, or striving to improve oneself as opposed to craving? Craving, yes. Mm. Yes, yes. Yes, there is, a, there is a difference. And often in the, the Pali language, they use tanha for craving and chanda for this sort of more wholesome desire. It's not always a positive, you know, this uh, desire, chanda, but in some contexts in the Buddha's teaching, it is. So we need to have that desire to practice in order to, to practice dhamma, to, to develop knowledge. And these are, these are wholesome things, but it will cause... Like, like craving does, it will cause some suffering because we, we may find we're not achieving what we hope to achieve and, and in that sense we can we experience as a craving, as, the, as a suffering as well. But the distinction they often make is it's, it's a craving that doesn't lead, it leads to the end of suffering. It does lead to some more suffering, but it actually is leading to the end of suffering. So it's a, it is a craving or a desire which is worthwhile. Most of the craving doesn't. It leads to suffering. It leads to rebirth. This is the important thing, that it, um, it leads to a rebirth. And what we aimed, these cravings that don't lead to a rebirth are um, often more wholesome and actually are good cravings for practicing the path. So, yeah, that's craving, yes. Or chanda. <laughs> yep. This is probably the last question. Good, good. That's it's good. more about um, the question is why Venerable Nisarano not given the title of Ajahn Nisarano here? I suppose on the uh, the, the, the oh. when we advertise the, the your upcoming talk. Oh right. Ajahn want to play it's got Ajahn. venerable, has it? Yeah, we at the moment we put it as venerable. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, no, in so I use why not Ajahn? Yes, yes. In uh, main reason is because in Sri Lanka I don't use Ajahn, I use venerable. But in the Thai tradition, of course, Ajahn is a meaningful title. You know, somebody who is uh, more than ten years as a monk or uh, or a nun. Um, actually, in Thailand, it's any teacher, whether it's a teacher in a school, university, wherever or a monk or a nun, um, they, they would be called, if they've got 10 years as a monk or a nun, Ajahn. It also comes from the Pali word Acharya, which means teacher. So that's the reason. And uh, as I say, most of the time I have been in Sri Lanka, so I use venerable. But even say, having said that, 
you know, uh, Ajahn Brahm is so well known in Sri Lanka that Ajahn it would be recognizable to Sri Lankan people too. So that's the reason. I don't mind either. They're fine. Yeah, thank you very much for that. And thank you to everyone who's participated this morning. One more question? One question just came up, Ajahn. Yeah. So would you, Ajahn, like to yes, pick up one last right. question? Last yep. question, We've yes. probably got five minutes. Five minutes. I feel hmm. like I don't have a partner because of past karma. Yes. Is this possible? If so, how do I change this? Uh-huh. This is to improve something in my life to create a, a positive, loving relationship. Right. Right. Is that the possibility of it being caused by past karma? It could be. You know, it's the working of karma, the Buddha said, is a great uh, impon- uh, imponderable. You can't. It's very difficult to, to, to say that. You can sort of get a feeling, of course, if things... Um, you know, like that are happening regularly, that yes, maybe it's coming from a past past life. So it's possible. But the way to change it, of course, is to develop loving kindness. It's a very big way to change it. And particularly loving kindness to yourself, so you, you don't feel like, uh, you know, maybe you're negative about yourself because you think, well, I can't get a partner, I must be unattractive, you know, and, and feel let down or whatever, or negative, critical about yourself. Well, so loving kindness for yourself doesn't think like that. It just feels this uh, kindness, this friendliness, openness, acceptance, non-judgment towards oneself. And when you have that, then everything else will change around you. Because this is what you're seeking, actually, when you look for a partner, is this sort of love from another person. But when you practice loving kindness, you actually are developing what you're looking for in another, and it's coming from yourself. But also, once you have loving kindness for yourself, and you can actually extend it to other people, it will be a magnet to other people, uh, and it will draw them to you. And one of the most important things in terms of relationships is not, and this is very hard when you, <laughs> when you feel like you, that you're not developing uh, relationships, so that there seems to be some sort of block, then you, you can develop a need. You feel needy. And this sense of being needy is a great uh, uh, way to put other people off. <laughs> so when you come from loving kindness, you won't have that neediness. You will have answered the need in yourself. And then what you'll be getting is other people who are resonating or are attracted by this loving kindness that you've developed. So, so this is a very important way to, you know, to develop relationships and very good relationships too because you've got loving kindness for yourself and you can give loving kindness to others. So thank you for that. I hope... Wish you success. <laughs> one listener just reminded that I left out one question. All right. Rajan, yes, just, take, just one last question. Yes, all right. Yes. What practice can I perform on a daily basis, especially now that I'm older, mm-hmm. which helped me to come to terms with my own impermanence? Ah, right, right. I think uh, you know the the uh, recollection of the the five daily five themes for daily recollection or re- frequent recollection. They're very good. You know the ones that I mentioned are very good. And the next talk, uh, probably the next talk I will do, will be on how we develop we can develop this wisdom, this understanding of the nature. 
but just reflecting on old age in ourselves, what it feels like, um, and seeing that uh, this body is aging, um, and seeing that the body is one thing, the mind is another. That the body, it will always be of the nature to um, deteriorate. There has to be. You know, we'll lose our strength, uh, our ability to do uh, quite a lot of things. We'll find limitations that we didn't have before. But the mind doesn't have to be like that. So really, uh, old age is an invitation to develop our minds and develop these wholesome states of mind, positive states of mind, and wise states of mind. So when we reflect on old age, that uh, I am of the nature to become old or age, uh, I am not exempt from it, then this can come up. And also, too, uh, because sometimes people will think, oh, poor me, you know, I'm the only one that's uh, experiencing this, then to reflect all beings have that nature. And if we reflect often, the Buddha says, then we can get this insight into whatever is of the nature to arise, of the nature to cease. So this is some ways that you can um, uh, reflect on old age and deal with it. But also, very importantly, as you know, whatever age we are, is to develop this loving kindness metta towards ourselves and others, accepting. And, 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 you know, as you get older, having metta towards the body is, <laughs> is quite useful too because it can't do all the things that it used to do. Um, but uh, our minds can, can still be, our minds can really still develop. So uh, this is an important one to see that it's only the body that ages, uh, that gets sick, that dies. It doesn't have to be the mind. It tends, for most people who haven't practiced uh, a spiritual path, developed a spiritual path, this inner life, they tend to, when the body ages, when it's sick, um, they tend to suffer quite a bit with it. But if we have this inner spiritual life, these qualities of loving kindness and some wisdom, then we don't have to suffer so much. So uh, I, there's a very nice sutta where the um, Nakamura Pitta um, uh, is talking to the Buddha and the Buddha says to him, you know, that it's not, it's not strange that, uh, you know, you, you, you've got, you're old and you've got these sicknesses and everything. But uh, uh, the body may be suffering, but don't allow the mind to suffer, you know. And so and this can only be done by wisdom. It can only be done by wisdom. That's a wonderful sutta, Shinakala Pitta. I think it's in the Connected Discourses where the Buddha talks about it. And then the Venerable Sariputta explains to him how the mind need not suffer. And this is actually by seeing that this body... This mind is not me, not mine, not myself, at a very deep level. And then there is no suffering of the mind. So these are all ways of dealing uh, with old age. And uh, next, next talk I do, as I say, I'll talk about other ways of developing uh, this understanding of Anicca, developing the perception of Anicca, and then the understanding of Anicca. So thank you for that question. And I think that's the last one for today. So all the best to you. Thank you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry.